Most of us love a good crime story. It goes to the very essence of humanity. The good versus evil. And depending on the writer, character portrayal, you find yourself cheering for one side or the other. Violent crimes you want the bad people put away for life. And the same goes for corrupt cops. But sometimes you cheer for the criminals. In Ocean Eleven, we all wanted Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney and his band, to take down the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM Grand, walk away with $150 million from the owner of those three places, Terry Benedict. And within these stories, there are often trolls the informer, the rat, someone who would trade secrets for favors or survival or escaping prison. And when that character appears, in every scene I imagine being them, my chest tightens and my palms get sweaty. The people who control me, they don't care about me and the people I'm informing on, well, if they discovered I was there to take them down, then my life, even the lives of the people closest to me, would be over in the most unpleasant way possible. I think about being them and every second, every garbage can overturned by a zealous raccoon, every knock on my door would just send my mind and heart racing to extinction. And the moments when the informant is gathering information, we see their hands shaking as they try to snap off pictures. Or wearing a wire in a room full of thugs could squeeze your head like a lemon with their weakest hand. Or if a bus goes down, one that you help stage, where are you going to be in this crossfire hurricane between law and disorder? Well, today's show is about a former informant. In his younger days, his compass only spun in one direction, money. He didn't care about putting bad guys away. He was a bad guy who played both sides of the fence. He'd made money selling drugs, petty crime, and he made money as an informant to the police. His neighborhood was Uniaki Square, a public housing residential area in the north central area of Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's flanked in the northeast by Brunswick Street and to the southwest by Gottingen Street. Two thirds of the residents are women, two thirds are under 25, and unemployment in a good season is close to 30%. This was the feeding ground where he fed drugs until he met up with the Hells Angels and all hell broke loose. My name is Paul Derry, or at least I used to be. I was given a new name when I entered witness protection. Truth is, I'm on a Hells Angels hit list. Many people want me dead. I've never shown my face on camera before, but I'm done running, I'm done hiding. And now I'm going to tell my story. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Paul Derry. Today he's a best-selling author, a consultant. His compass is now set on redemption. But Paul Derry's running out of time. He's battling throat cancer, and he chose to emerge from witness protection and reveal his face as he viewed the experience hiding from the world worse than being inside prison. Paul Derry lives each day worrying about payback from the bikers his testimony helped put away in 2000. Paul, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Tom. Paul, people talk about your ability to engage people, to enlighten, to persuade. They say you're sort of, you're gifted with the gab, but instead of finding yourself in a job where those skills, you know, play out, sales, teaching, or counseling, you chose crime. Why that path? It's interesting. I, you know, I speak at source handling courses uh, on occasion, and I typically uh, start with this story of how I was cultivated. 
by the RCMP on a military base in uh, Greenwood, Nova Scotia. And uh, the first time an RCMP officer came up and gave me $20 to tell them where my friend's stash was of some weed. And uh, I uh, I thought $20 in 1979, that's, that's awesome, 15 years old. So, uh, you know, I ran down, told the guy where, where the weed was stashed and uh, or t- told them where the weed was stashed. And then we ran down and told my buddy, listen, get out of here. Uh, they're coming looking for your weed. So from that day on, you know, I, I realized that I could have the best of both worlds. Um, didn't think I would go that far that long. I actually thought I would join the military or, or do something, you know, after a couple of years, but uh, it ended up becoming a career path. Did you ever feel guilty or was it just you were wired to say, this is an incredible opportunity that, that I can have my cake and eat it too? Oh, there's a, there's a, there's a mixture of feelings all through this. Like, obviously you have, you know, it's like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. It's, you're constantly fighting with your conscience, not only when you break bread with friends and then watch them go to prison, but you know, you watch the RCMP go off and, and have their takedown parties. Well, you're, you're now hated by both worlds. You know, instead of going on to join the military, you know, you continue to follow this path and you fell in the Rockers Motorcycle Club, drug dealers, extortionists, escort service. What did you do for them? Uh, for me, I was mainly just uh, moving girls around. I would make the phone calls. And uh, so, so I was running a strip agency as well as uh, having the escort service. So it was more of just managing it. And making sure girls got from Mississauga when they came in to all the clubs in Southern Ontario. And then a lot of them worked at the escort service as well. One of the connections I tried to hang out with was Wayne James. Wayne was definitely my end to the Hells Angels. We had already become very good friends. Uh, He was their enforcer and he moved a lot of drugs for them, a lot of cocaine. So Wayne James was the person who controlled Uniac Square. What does that mean, control? What was he like? And what did you do to get on his good side? Uh, we'll start with getting on his good side. I, he was married to my my cousin, so uh, getting on his good side was easy. I, I've, I've knew Wayne since, you know, since I was young and uh, had been around him as a child and well, 14, 13. But Wayne's an interesting guy. I mean, he... He was doing really well in football at university. Then he went, uh, had some injuries. He went back to uh, Halifax and get into the drug scene. Uh, the UNAC is, uh, is the hood in Halifax. It's a, it's a predominantly uh, black and low income neighborhood. And Wayne, Wayne was uh, probably the, the king of, of that hood at, at that time. And uh, he worked for the Hells Angels uh, bringing in uh, cocaine to that area. Uh, when I came back in Halifax, he was, he had just got out of prison and he was now uh, working for the Hells Angels there. And we had reunited. We had been in prison together as well. So did he ever know that you were an informant or did he just think you were on the side that he was on, which was take advantage of the, the money that comes from doing things like running girls or dealing drugs? Lots of people suspected it over the years. When I went to prison in uh, 93, uh, Wayne was one of the first people to uh, meet me in the reception area, and uh, he helped him and him and Bobby Milton helped uh, make sure that I could get into population, even though those suspicions were there. So there was always suspicions, but I don't know. I guess that gift of the gab you were talking about helped alleviate them. 
Paul, you talked about Wayne having a relationship with the Hells Angels, but they decide to really take over the entire town. In doing so, Wayne James solidifies his partnership. But one of my questions is he's black and Hells Angels, from what I know of them, are very racist. How did that come about? Yeah, at the, you know, the, the Hells Angels at the root are, are white supremacists, a white supremacist organization. It's always been baffling to me. And and even to Wayne's mother, I remember, you know, before, not long before I took him down, she kept saying, Paul, you know, take care of him. Don't let him get killed. Because she knew that he, he was dealing with the Hells Angels and they were using him and, and would eventually kill him. And uh, we actually had meetings about it later on. Wayne was uh, um, the subject of a meeting between uh, me and two other Hells Angels and Bobby Milton, who was an ex-Hells Angel. And they were discussing taking Wayne out. So it was a matter of time before Wayne would, would, would get taken out, I believe. But. It's not just a drug operation now, now it's a Hells Angel murder. It was intense in that car. You cut the tension with a knife. It was, it was, it was an insane, insane feeling. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest is Paul Derry, who goes from petty crime to accessory to murder in the next 15 minutes. Wayne's the first person to walk you into the Hells Angels clubhouse. What was it like for you to go in there for the first time? Did you feel that I've arrived, I'm legit, or did you wonder what the hell am I doing here? No, I thought this is a great opportunity for an operation. And being an informant, you're always looking for an operation. So there's a difference between a source who just gives information, an informant who's coded, and then an agent who signs a contract and works uh, with the police agency to uh, take down under direction by them. So as an informant, you're always looking for uh, that right opportunity to get into the right spot to, to get a big operation, which would help you retire or... Or uh, pay it well. But Paul, you're not talking about, you know, telling an RCM person where your buddy's weed is. I mean, you're now walking into one of the most violent organized crimes groups on the planet who would think nothing of taking an informant and ending their life in the most unpleasant way. But that didn't bother you. You just saw opportunity. Yeah. At that point, I had been working for the RCMP for it's 20 years. So I had actually done much more dangerous operations before that and, uh, and taken down much more dangerous people than them. So I, I know they have the, the colors and the, and, and the intimidation and the fear, but there's much crazier people I think I took down or, you know, leading up to this. Was that an adrenaline rush for you or just a, a source of income or sort of validation that you had a role in the planet that was different and unique? It's interesting. In my uh, book, Inside a Police Informant's Mind, I, I put motivations of an informant. And uh, I guess I'd have to answer all of the above. Uh, my uh, handler in the beginning ended up being Deputy Commissioner Mike Cabana. Leaving a military base and, and meeting Mike early, I think there was a lot of the, the uniform, the authority, the approval, the kudos you get. So there was that. There was always the money, but money was never the motivating factor. I, I think for that last operation, it was. The last operation was, I just wanted out and, and be done with it. I wanted to retire. Let's take it back to the Hells Angels. You know, you've been an informer for 20 years. You're going into this club and you meet up with someone called Neil Smith. What did he do for the Hells Angels? Because he becomes a key part of this, this chapter of your life. 
Yeah, Neil, known as Nasty Neil Smith, and uh, the RCMP at that time considered him one of the most uh, prominent criminals in, in that area. He was taking over the drug trade. I ended up in with him by telling him that I could bring him weapons from Ontario. I had just moved down. I'd get out of prison. I was on parole. I had made a lot of connections while in prison. So when I came back, I met him in, at the Unix, at Unix Square with Wayne at a party. So when I told him I could get him weapons, he was, he was hooked right from there. Does it ever cross somebody's mind when you're almost too good to be true? You've just gotten out of prison. You're on parole. You meet someone at a party and... Next thing you know, your resume or credentials is I can bring you weapons. Do you ever wonder how people just immediately go after the prize versus sort of thinking through there might be more to this than than they see on the surface? Well, I, I thought them to be quite not so bright. I guess they're always looking at the money. That's that's what they're after, right? And and what they can use, what they can utilize. I had done an operation in '96 or started an operation in '96 just before uh, I went back to prison. It was against the same clubhouse. So for them to let me in four years later and actually take them down, I thought they weren't the brightest bunch. And so Neil Smith, you start working with you and Wayne, the drug business goes a little bit on steroids, but Neil Smith turns to Wayne one day and asks him to do something that you're involved with. What was it? Yeah, he asked us to wax uh, Sean Simmons. Well, he asked Wayne first. We were standing at a bar, at a private club, and we were near the bar. Uh, Wayne was talking to him just to the side of me kind of thing while I was having a drink. I knew they were talking business, and and I was listening partially because I was involved in business. I was Wayne's partner at the time. He ran his finger across his throat and said, uh, whack him. And then Wayne came over to me and said, you heard him. Then that set in motion the plan to murder Sean Simmons. And why was Sean Simmons a target? Uh, Sean had slept with Mike McRae's mistress. Uh, Mike McRae was the president of the Hells Angels at the time. Neil was trying to sort of garner favors or was Neil just simply carrying out an order to say somebody that sleeps with the boss's mistress doesn't deserve to walk on this planet? I think Neil had a couple of reasons. I mean, he was called Nasty Neil for a reason, but um, he had tortured Sean and, and, and done some things to him earlier. And I think he was scared Sean was going to come back and, and kill him. There was a lot of reasons. He, he wanted to work his way up in Mike's eyes and stuff like that, too. So, Describe how you and Wayne whacked this guy. Uh, so we were in the UNIX Square. And well, first, I guess, I, you know, we, we tracked him down. We had put a we knew where he was hanging because I had ran into him at a crack house um, in Dartmouth. So we knew he frequented there. So we put somebody in there uh, to deal crack. And uh, when Sean showed up again, this guy called us up and uh, told us he was there. And Wayne said, let's go. We got in the car and away we went. We went over to Dartmouth and it was a Tuesday afternoon, October 3rd, and uh, shot him in the middle of the afternoon. How did you feel driving over? I mean, you know, somebody that was that got by by their gifted gab, dealing drugs, escort services are very different than somebody that's in a car heading to a murder scene. It was surreal um, for a number of reasons. I had been dealing with the RCMP for a month beforehand, trying to get the operation started, and uh, that was not working out well. Uh, we knew we were coming up close to him being found. I had talked to the RCMP on Thursday just before this. They were supposed to get back to me the next day, and they didn't. Well, actually, they were supposed to get back to me on Monday, sorry. And they didn't. And then Tuesday it was killed. So going to the, going over there was very surreal for a lot of reasons. One, it was the middle of the afternoon. 
than the fact that I thought we were going to be able to stop this already. And now I'm in the middle of it. That was that was blowing my mind. It was hard to think, that's for sure. And you picked up sort of this loose cannon on the way. I, w- I watched the documentary. I guess that was somebody that you knew could, could pull the trigger. We picked up uh, Dino, Kelsey. That was uh, uh, Wayne's nephew. We had known him for a lot of years. I had known him for a lot of years. Obviously, Wayne knew him. So now I had Wayne in the car. I had Dino in the car. And my ex-wife was in the car. On the way over, I thought I convinced Wayne that, you know, this was a dumb idea, that it's the middle of the afternoon, you're six foot, some, you're black, you're going to stand out. And he said, you're right, just before we got there. And then he turned around and handed the gun to Dino. And it didn't end up happening anyway. After the murder, Wayne James gives you the gun and tells you to throw it off a bridge to get rid of the evidence. But instead, you chose to bury it. And that becomes crucial as the story unfolds. But just take us back to that moment. I mean, the adrenaline, the, the fact that it's broad daylight, uh, murders just happened, you're holding the smoking gun. There was a lot of things racing through my mind. Obviously, the, the murder had just taken place. I remember dropping Wayne and Neil off, started driving towards the bridge. And I thought, this is a dumb idea. Now, it was already dumb enough. I had all the, I had the, the bloody clothes. I had the, the murder weapon. I was already shaky, I guess you would say. But as I I came close to the bridge, the first thought I had was, I have to go through the toll booth, and I didn't want to do that with with the with the weapons. But then I thought, no, if I throw this weapon over the bridge, I'll never have anything as evidence. So I thought I'll drive out to Lawrencetown Beach and I'll bury it there. Very quickly, things start to unravel when the police put you at the scene and you find out that you're, the place you live in has been raided and the two kids that you have and adore are being taken away and put into child's custody. Where did that send you? You know, I, I found out the next morning. So they raided the apartment that uh, on October 11th. They took Stevie into custody, took my children into childcare. Me and Wayne and uh, my ex were on our way back from PEI. We had just taken a load of cocaine over to PEI. I decided not to go home knew the kids would be asleep. And uh, I got up in the, the next morning and I got a phone call from my cousin. She said, your house was raided last night. The kids are in custody. Steve's in custody. And there's a warrant out for your arrest. And uh, took some Valium, got some drugs together and turned myself into a lawyer that afternoon at one o'clock. And then he told me to go over to the Dartmouth police station, turn myself in there and, and I did. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. This is Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Paul Derry once again plays an informant card, but now needs to get evidence on Neil Smith and his murder companions. What would you do? Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. And a big shout out to RBC for RBC Upskill, powered by FutureFit AI. It's an extraordinary platform. It helps young people explore careers, build skills for the future, and identify job opportunities. It's free at rbcupskill.ca. Empowering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow. That matters to RBC. My legs are actually shaking. Going into a jail full of convicts. If anybody found out I was wearing a wire, somebody will still walk up and stab you right in front of a guard's booth. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest is Paul Derry. 
So, Paul, you turned yourself in and you kind of shocked the police because you let them know that you've been an informant for the RCMP for 20 years. This all turns into them realizing that you could be the Trojan horse for taking down the Hells Angels, something they desperately want to do because the Hells Angels have been running a path of violence through Halifax. Tell us how that comes about where you agree that this might be your ticket out of being accused of murder and spending a lifetime in jail. Okay, so on October 12th, when I turned myself in, they took me into uh, into custody and took me and started interrogating me. It was probably 10 hours later. I finally just said, uh, I need a bathroom break. And one of the one of the officers turned off the equipment. We went to the bathroom. I happened to have the card from the Justice Department uh, when Cabana gave me the connection in Halifax to tell about the murder. I had the card, his card still in my back pocket. So I took it out of my back pocket. I threw it on the bathroom uh, sink. And I said, if you want to know what happened in the murder, call these guys. And it was the Justice Department card. That kind of stunned them. And they they, they did. They shut everything off. And and uh, from there, we ended up starting to make a deal on, on what I was going to do next. So what they asked you to do, which is creates fear in my body, and I wasn't there, was you have to go in and get information from Dino, Wayne James, and Neil Smith so that they have the evidence they need to put them away. Watching your documentary, Dino seemed pretty easy. You just went to visit him in jail and used your gift of gab to get him talking. Was it was it as easy as it looked when I saw that show? No. The entertainment is beautiful. I guess they can only put in what they put in, put in but Dino wasn't in jail when this, the operation started. So we started just before Christmas. And so there was Dino, Steve Garreau, um, Wayne James, and Neil Smith. I had to maneuver around fairly carefully because uh, I was now partners with Bobby Milton, enemies with Wayne James. So I had to earn my way back in with Wayne James, yet not cause any suspicion. So it became a fairly complex operation for sure for maneuvering around. And it was probably a, a more dangerous from that perspective than anything. So the reason you were with Bobby versus Wayne, just so we have context for the listener, what had made you after the murder change sides and sort of move away from Wayne James? Uh, it wasn't really my choice. It was Neil Smith's. Um, Wayne wasn't producing and he was going deeper and deeper in debt. Uh, he hooked me up with Bobby Milton and told me that Bobby Milton and I would now control the Uniac area, which really made Wayne an enemy and along with a lot of his friends, which made it very difficult to to go down to the hood, but that's what had to be done. So. so you seem to be always having the cards stacked in your favor in terms of intellectual capability, but some of the people you're dealing with, they look like they're not playing with a full deck. I mean, to let you back in, that's quite a feat. If he suddenly feels you've abandoned him and everything that he had in terms of control of the town is now in your hands and this other guy's hands. Again, it's always money. They're blinded by their own greed, all, all of them, whether it's the Hells Angels, whether it's the drug dealers in the hood. The more they think that they're going to make money, the more they get blinded to everything around them. So talk to us about how you got the confessions from both Dino and Wayne that had the police getting quite excited that they had started to put together the evidence they needed to shut the Hells Angels down. Yeah, Dino's was fairly easy once I got him in jail. I didn't do 
much with Dino beforehand, except getting close with him and let him know that I was more on his side than anybody else's, that I understood that he didn't get paid what he should for the murder. And then when he was in jail, of course, he felt he was being left hung out to dry. So I just turned him against Wayne in the in the visiting room by you know making a few comments about how they were going to leave him, take the rap for the murder. And of course, he blew up and got emotional and, and, and talked. So... I got that wire. That was wearing the wire into the into the correctional center. And then Wayne James is a very different story because you have him over at your house for supper. Yeah, Wayne came over. This was just shortly after we made up. It was, in fact, the supper was part of us making up, and I really had to apologize lots and 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 really kind of bow down to Wayne and and let him feel uh, totally in control. He didn't want to talk much about anything, so he was worried about the house being wired, which it was. Um, but I was also wearing a wire. So he said, let's go out on the balcony and we'll talk there. And I, I told him I didn't throw the gun over the bridge. And he got really upset about it, which incriminated him. And then they arrested him that night after he left my house and went home. The spotlight must be shining on you that the people that you're closest to and this murder have both been put into jail, and the person still out there is Neil Smith. How are you not an immediate target? I, I was on, uh, as we get closer to the operation ending, it was Thursday, just before Good Friday. So it would have been the 12th of uh, April. Uh, Bobby Milton uh, came over to my house. He, he called me up. He had actually admitted to another murder while I was wearing a wire at the club that night and uh unfortunately the batteries were in backwards on the on the unit i was wearing and so they didn't get the information so but bobby knew he said it to me and the next day it was a headline in the halifax paper about that murder it was a cold case uh, article so bobby immediately uh he called up and and he said uh, i had been looking for uh, bullets for uh a 38 that I had. And he said, I got those teeth that you, you wanted for that thing. And I was like, this is a weird call to get today, especially after we had been looking for a long time for these specific ones. And uh, he said, I'll be over in the next hour. Of course, they heard that on the phone at the safe, uh, safe house or wherever they were listening from and called me and said, we need to get you out of there. And I said, yeah, a good idea. So they took, took me to the safe house and we listened as Bobby came to the house and we had, there was surveillance being done on him. He breaks into the house and once he's in there, he calls the clubhouse and said he couldn't get me, uh, that I was already gone. They decided, the Halifax Regional Police then decided to keep me in a safe house for the weekend and they wanted me to do one more uh, meet with Neil after that, even though it was Neil that had ordered that hit. So let's, let's just stop there for a second. So Neil sent someone over to whack you and you've got two compelling confessions, three if you include Bobby's, but the police still aren't satisfied. They need Neil Smith to admit that he was part of that murder. Did you have any choice in that? Because I mean, that's as close to uh, signing your own death sentence as I've ever heard. They came in on Saturday uh, while we were at, at the safe house and asked me if I would. And would, would I meet with Neil one more time on Tuesday? I thought the operation was going to be shut down after the attempt. We're not going to force you to do it, but we, we could use one more, one more uh, wire on, on Neil. And I said, you're going to have to give me some time to think about it because I really wasn't sure I wanted to attempt it. 
And then I thought, well, I'll give it one more shot. Why not? What did it feel like walking into the Hells Angels clubhouse wearing a wire? It's, it's an odd feeling. I mean, I'm guessing technology is much better today than it was back in 2000. I mean, I had a, a box the size of a cigarette package down my pants with two wire probes coming up and taped under my nipples. So... Uh, in fact, I got patted down once and they went right over it. And I thought, I hope they just think those are hard nipples, not not uh, a wire probe. I wouldn't say there's a rush to that, but there's definitely a lot of fear. You, on your shoulders and your conscience, you held Sean Simmons' murder and the fact that he was a father and children and such. I mean, that's something that really did bother you, didn't it? Yeah, it bothered me for a long time. I, there's a few murders that I, I was in and around and, and, and trying to solve over the years that took place that I went in and got information that really bothered me. But obviously, this one I was a part of. I knew violence was an everyday part of our the life that I was in, involved in. That was just a lot more real because uh, I guess I was in the car. And I had talked to Sean. I had I guess there was a lot of things that just made it more real. You put the three people behind bars for 25 years. How did that make you feel knowing that Dino, Wayne, and Neil would be not seeing the light of day for that long of a time? For Neil Smith, I felt nothing. I think he should be locked away forever. Uh, Dino, I don't believe he'll he'll ever change. Uh, he's a very violent man. But do I have feelings about putting Wayne away? Yeah, I still dream about him at night. And, and uh, yeah, there's, there, there was some closeness to me and Wayne throughout the years. So I think that one affects me a little. My goal was to take these guys down and there was going to be a payout and I was going to ride off into the sunset. But it was dangerous. If Wayne and Neil found out I was riding, if I was lucky, they would just put a bullet in my head. Maybe I'd have my tongue removed. But then he said, OK, we'll be in touch. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. I'm chatting with Paul Derry, an informant that puts three people in the jail for 25 years without parole, and all three were attached to the Hells Angels. He goes in his witness protection with his wife and two kids and ends up suing the RCMP and government for how he's expected to live. Paul, petty crime, you're convicted for fraud, accessory to murder, and you go into witness protection with your family. But you really feel you got a raw deal. Why? Do I feel it's a raw deal? I, I feel that the program is incompetent. Do I think I should have had to earn my way out of a life sentence uh, in the killing of Sean Simmons? No. Uh, I tried to stop it beforehand. Uh, was I involved in it? Yes. The part of suing the RCMP is more about the incompetence in the program. And, th and they certainly weren't happy with me from day one. Uh, there, there was a personal uh, vendetta from my first handler. It was the same guy who labeled me treacherous and and who was causing all the problems in in the beginning. So that didn't help matters in the beginning. But throughout the 18, 19 years in the program, it just came to a head. I mean, the incompetence, it just adds up and, and, and something needs to be changed about the program. But you talk about feeling like a ghost, that you didn't know your mom was sick or had passed away, that your kids suffered uh, mental health issues. But at the same time, you say that witness protection program is necessary. If you want to catch criminals, you need to work with other criminals. So give us a perspective of what goes on in witness protection and how the listener would feel if they're suddenly taken away from everything they know to go somewhere where they know little or anything. 
I think one of the probably the mental things you deal with is it's it's like being dead, but being able to watch everything go on. You're living a life where you're dead to everybody, but but you're still in existence and can still see them all. Uh, you just can't contact them. Uh, I knew the lifestyle I was in. I knew I was in the crime world. I know what witness protection is to some degree. I knew what prison was, all those things. Um, my children knew nothing. My new wife who married me in after I was out of the program, kicked out of the program for writing my first book, knew nothing about my life. All of a sudden, there's a threat to my life and they have to come and relocate me and change our names. Her and the two kids she came into the relationship with all of a sudden are caught up in this too. Again, more people that are collateral damage. And, and the program doesn't have anything to deal with that. So now that you've come out of witness protection and you revealed your face, I mean, first you were thrown out for writing your first book. I'm sure it did not impress the RCMP. And then you literally came out and showed your face. What made you do that? I have more life behind me than I do ahead of me. I'm aware of that. With whatever life I got left, I want to make a difference and make some changes. It's the reason I wrote the books. It's the reason I do the interviews. It's the reason I did the documentaries. Although I will say the documentaries end up always being entertainment. I've done two now and I would prefer they be about the truth. But at the end of the day, I, I want to make a difference. I would like to see changes made in how we deal with organized crime. I'd like to see changes made in the program. I would definitely like to see better working conditions for informants who are working full time and wanting to be agents that are going back and forth from informant work to agent work. And the RCMP's arrogance in, in how they deal with uh, people needs to change. I'm tired of hiding. And what are you hoping to do with the time that you have left so that when Paul Derry's remembered, it's not just as the petty crime or the fraud or the witness protection or taking on the RCMP. I mean, what would legacy be like for you that you'd look down from the heavens and say, you know what, for the remaining time I had on this planet, I did good. I think I've done a lot of good in, in the things that I've done, even in putting bad guys in jail. But that's not what I care about. Whatever people think of Paul Derry is irrelevant to me. Uh, in my new name and, and under my new identity, I, I work in two different areas of, of nonprofit work. And one is working with veterans and police officers and PTSD. And, and the other is human trafficking. I've, I've spent a lot of years now trying to go back and, and take people off the streets and out of the streets. So how would people get hold of you or your books? They can go to my website at uh, pauldairy.ca. I answer everybody. I have no problem giving out my phone number if they want to talk to me. I've, I'm, I make myself available. I don't hide anymore from anybody. And I've talked to some people that have come out of the hood, and they always talk about you know the forks in the road, the, the easy path, crime and drugs. It gives you purpose. It gives you a, a prestige. It puts money in your pocket. What advice could you give to the young Paul Derry's out there so that they might follow a different path than you followed? when you first took that $20 to uh, tell the RCMP where your friend's weed was stashed? I think it's about following your passion and what your heart is in. I guess if I had to do it over again, if I wanted to go down this path and use use the gift of gab, I would have joined the police force and done undercover work uh, legitimately through the police uh, as an officer. You've been given a gift. You have a gift, use it. Put it with your passion and your heart and, and, and recognize what you don't know, but recognize what you do have and use the gift properly. Paul, I always end my podcast with the three things that I've learned. And the first one I want to talk about is you're unapologetic. This is the life you've led. This is the cards that you've played. You shoulder the path you followed. The second thing that I think is that you really have 
an incredible love for your family. You might appreciate family more than most who can just wander in and wander out at their convenience. And I think the third thing is really this concept of following your passion. We always hit forks in the road and sometimes passion might lead us down the path that we shouldn't be going because it's the more tempting. It's right in front of us. But I think that what I'm taking away from you is that the uh, that inside all of us, there's a gift. Recognize it, embrace it, try to make the most of it. So for all of that and for being just absolutely uh, mesmerized by your story, this incredible polarity between courage and conviction and corruption, it is certainly a life uh, well lived. Definitely too complex for 35 minutes, eh, Tony? <laughs> I have a lot of heart for RBC. And my love goes beyond the sponsorship of Chatter That Matters. Over the past two years, I've touched on so many subjects that really matter to our individual health, the health of our economy, communities, and our country. Topics like mental health and diversity, immigration, entrepreneurship, women-led businesses. And each time, RBC's there. They're there to help Olympians seek the podium they deserve, and artists and musicians find an audience for their creativity, encouraging women to make movies. They support our agricultural sector, and help to invest in technology that combat climate change. And one of my favorite future launch, a $500 million investment to help youth find their path in life and so much more. RBC defines their success as a company by the long-term well-being of the people that they serve, the places that they operate, and the planet that they'll leave to future generations. As this purpose-driven company, they see it as their responsibility to help create positive social and economic impact within our communities. Now, it's easy to dismiss words as just words or say that's brand propaganda. But if you're a fan of Chatter That Matters, you will know that RBC puts their words into action and they back those words by their intellectual, emotional, and financial capital. And in doing so, individuals like Paul Derry, when he was 15, might have found another path in life to follow than one of crime. Humanity, community, and our country matters to you, matters to me, and it matters to RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.